Hey, good morning, everyone. This is episode 200 of the Just Human Show, or whatever it is that I do here on <laughs> on these mornings. I have a show planned out today with some controversial topics and some topics that we're going to dig into. And then I just got a new topic because um, I just saw that um, apparently the Biden administration has announced who is going to replace General Milley. So we're going to dig into that. I was While the intro was going, I'm over here archiving the article and getting it ready because uh, we're going to take a look at that and we're going to look and see who this guy is. Uh, let me finish bookmarking that still setting up for the show right up to the last minute. Um, also still sneezing like crazy. Uh, I got a little bit of water in my eyes. That's from allergies. It's not that I'm crying because this is episode 200. Um, <laughs> although it, it's funny to me that it's episode 200. I can't, I feel like I've done like maybe 50 episodes. Um, I can't, I, I don't even know what to say. Thank you, God. I, well, I do know what to say. Thank you, everyone, for watching all these silly shows that I do and bearing with me as I try and figure out stuff. And um, yeah, just all the support that you guys give me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy for it to be episode 200. And um, I look forward to doing many more. Um, I really I really enjoy this. And um, it's you guys. It's your support that makes it possible. And yeah, thank you very much. So let me uh, go right ahead and jump into something that is sure to be controversial and sure to win me friends and influence people. Um, here we go. Yes. So Proud Boys got convicted. And this trial has been going on for like 60 days. Um, I have been tracking it outside of this show. I haven't been making it a centerpiece of this show because it's just like it's just so controversial um i think this I, like the way i look at it is that um january 6th would not have been the event that it became if um not for the proud boys and the oath keepers um it was the proud boys and the oath keepers who are primarily responsible in my view for the quote-unquote insurrection um, it was these, it was the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who showed up early to the Capitol. They straight up skipped Trump's speech. They didn't care about Trump's speech. They weren't there for Trump. In fact, in the days leading up to January 6th, they had already turned on Trump and had been texting about how Trump isn't going to do what he needs to do. And they were communicating with each other about how now is the time for us to start a civil war. We need, we need a new Lexington. Um, we need to go out there and we need to force ourselves upon the constitutional process and subvert it or block it, stop it. And as part of their plan, what they decided to do was that they were going to break into several federal buildings on January 6th. And they were going to try to get as many MAGA people inside those buildings as possible. Their goal was to get, and they put this in writing, their goal was to get 50 people or more inside the federal buildings and hold them hostage. They also made a plan to find, well, they went on, they went online and they tried to find out where all of the tunnels were that politicians used to escape from Congress or from the Capitol building. In the event of emergency, they went and found where all the exits were and they attempted to take hostage 
uh, members of Congress, members of the Senate, staff. Um, they That was their plan. It was an insurrection, and it was a seditious conspiracy. And I don't know how anybody can argue differently from that. Um, this trial didn't go exactly as uh, the prosecution would have liked. There were definitely mistakes on both sides. And um, the trial did get messy at point, but the fact remains that these guys committed crimes. Um, there's been a lot of fake news about this trial. There's been a number of um, people, especially on the right, who have run misinformation and disinformation stories, in my view, um, including claiming that the 1776 document was authored by the FBI and planted in the Proud Boys Telegram group. That's all BS. Um, it was not written by the FBI. It was written by someone who claimed in testimony that he was groomed when he was in college and high school to one day join the FBI. He never did. It was just him bloviating. He came up with this 1776 plan. He said he came up with the bullet points of it, gave it to Tario's girlfriend, who then gave it to Tario. And that document became the plan for January 6th. Um, I think that one of the problems with interpreting this trial and its meaning is that the left, some of the worst people on the left, um, the most rabid anti-Trump people, they try to take the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys trial and immediately make it a condemnation of Trump. So in their mind, they're framing it as Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were Trump's minions. They were his soldiers of MAGA. And he encouraged them and provoked them into doing this with his comments such as, it's going to be wild or um, stand back and stand by. Um, which, of course, neither one of those things can in any way be construed to substantively encourage someone to be violent. <laughs> if you tell someone to stand back and stand by, you're not telling them to act. You're specifically telling them not to act. You're telling them to wait. Um, there's nothing illegal about that. But anyway, the people on the left, they want to take Oath Keepers and Proud Boys trial and their actions on January 6th, and they want it to speak towards MAGA as a whole and speak to Trump specifically and use it as a means to blame him for January 6th. People on the right, in my opinion, seem to be extra defensive about Proud Boys and Oath Keepers because they feel like it's an attack on the right, on MAGA. And it's understandable why they would feel that way. But the truth of the matter is that Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were not on MAGA's side, and they weren't on Trump's side, and they're not on our side, and we can condemn what they did on January 6th and what they planned and participated in and tried to carry out without condemning MAGA as a whole and without condemning Trump specifically. We can still say that what they did was wrong and that they violated the law. And so some of the problems that I think people have in interpreting this trial is a lack of... Um, well, when you read news from one side, one side paints it a very they 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 frame it all the way in one direction. So, in right side in the, in the media that's on the right, 
Proud Boys and Oath Keepers trials and convictions now are framed as this relentless prosecution of MAGA, unfounded, corrupt, crooked, mean old Garland. Um, like it's it's just characterized all the way with as much hyperbole as possible. And then if you read on the left from news outlets on the left, it's characterized all the way to the other side. And, and what's left out is the actual substance of what these guys did. I, in my opinion, everybody should read the indictment of the Proud Boys and of the Oath Keepers and learn what these guys were exactly involved in. Um, you know, there were um, there's a lot of allegations about January 6th that it was the feds who are behind January 6th. Sometimes it's called the Fed surrection. Um, and so people also, that also skews people thinking on it because they think that the FBI set all these groups up and set January 6th up and then made January 6th happen as a way to get Trump. And so when these groups are convicted, people then think, oh, well, they were set up. They're just the fall guys for what the feds did. And it, that's just not accurate. There have actually been there was we, we just covered the idea other day on, the, on this show, an F, a former FBI agent who was arrested for his role on January sixth, and there's been other people who were arrested, um, who had some relationship with the FBI, but there's no evidence that the FBI is responsible for January sixth or planned January sixth, or that any feds quote unquote planned January sixth and made it happen. There is evidence that. Some Ukrainians did. And there's evidence that groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys planned it. And there's evidence that there were informants embedded in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And some of those informants got charged for their roles because they broke the law. And some of those informants did not tell their handlers all that they knew about the activities of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Um. I think if, you know, like if the FBI hadn't had any informants in any of these groups, we would have a problem with that, wouldn't we? These are exactly the type of groups that they should be tracking because these groups ended up planning an insurrection that got in the way of what was most important that day. The end result, the net of the end of effect, the effect that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers actions on January 6th had is that the objections to the slates of electors never happened. Not past Arizona. Because these guys interrupted that proceeding. If Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were on Trump's side, quote-unquote, if they cared about the 2020 election... They didn't want it to be stolen, and they didn't want it to be certified. Then the proud keepers and the oath, the proud boys and the oath keepers, should have done what Trump said: stand back and stand by. And allowed the objections to happen. 
Because that's what we needed that day. That was Trump's plan. That was Pence's plan. That was the plan of people in Congress who had agreed that they were going to object and that they were going to introduce evidence of fraud. If everybody had done what Trump asked them to and just walked over to the Capitol and chanted and prayed and sung songs and all of those things and encouraged people inside and, and like just formed a crowd around the Capitol and allowed the senators and congressmen to object to the slates of electors and then, enter, and then debate it for two hours and introduce evidence on the record would have been a completely different day. Instead, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers executed a plan that entrapped MAGA inside federal buildings and specifically sought to capture representatives and senators and they 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 ruined everything and they gave they gave the weak Republicans who had agreed to object prior to the 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 uh, joint session they gave them the out that they wanted to not object and so after the joint session comes back together and Pence asks for objections they start saying no we're not going to object it's been too this has been too bad we just need to move on So part of me part of me wants to go through the Proud Boy trial and like show you just exactly how bad some of these guys are show you some of the violent acts they committed the things they said to cops in dc and at the capitol um the not just the fences they tore down but the windows they broke the doors they broke you know a lot of a lot of times on the right when we talk about january 6 we get comments about how it was totally peaceful and there was no violence and people just walked around and went for a museum tour inside the Capitol. And it's true that most people did. Maybe even, I don't even, I don't know what the stat is, but maybe even 99% of the people who went into the Capitol that day did nothing wrong other than trespass and as a consequence interrupt a joint session of Congress. But there are a number of people, especially people associated with Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, who went in and broke doors, broke windows, tried to get inside office doors, tried to tear doors off hinges. There's a there's a video of a um, there's a secure area that they got to and there's a secure fencing. There's one video where um, the cops are retreating from the crowd and they're trying to lower this security barrier that's like this metal garage door. And you see these Proud Boy and Oath Keeper types, and I don't know exactly which group it was, it might be a mix of the groups, who start throwing chairs and like trash cans and other things under the garage door to prevent the secure door from coming down. Because their goal wasn't to just protest or go on a tour. Their goal was to interrupt the joint session and to take hostages and to capture the building. 
the acts they commit are very similar to Antifa, which should make you wonder um, about just exactly who's behind these types of groups. So uh, part of me wants to do that, but I don't think I will because um, I don't, I don't want it to belabor the point. And I know that it's something that's contentious and controversial and I've already gotten some uh, pushback from people because when I saw this indictment come out or this conviction come out, um, I said, good, this is good. I am going to just uh, recap exactly who was convicted for what right here. And then we'll move on to our next topic. If you're interested in learning more about um, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and their role on January 6th, then I suggest you read the indictment and you look at some of the exhibits that were used at the trial to convict them. Some of the text messages they were sending to each other, emails, the document they used, and videos of their behavior. Um, one thing that is left out a lot on the right and in, in right side media is that they don't show the videos of what these guys actually did outside and inside the Capitol. And on the left side media, they don't show good MAGA people just behaving and not interrupting anything and getting entrapped by these groups. You know, there's, there's unfairness on both sides. So, uh, but here's the end result of this trial that lasted two months. Jerry convicts four leaders According to evidence at trial in the months leading up to January 6th, the defendants plotted to oppose by force the lawful transfer of power and to prevent the members of Congress and federal law enforcement officers to protect them from discharging their duties. They started planning for January 6th, the week of the election. That, that, ex that exact week, they started planning this day and this event. It was always in their mind to do this. Henry Enrique Tario, who, by the way, has worked as a um, informant for the FBI, which is another reason why people say that this was the Fed surrection. But look, they just convicted him because he broke the law. Just because you're an informant doesn't mean you get to break the law. Enrique Tario of Miami, the former national chairman of Proud Boys, Ethan Nording, 32 of Auburn, Washington, Joseph Biggs, 39 of Ormond Beach, Florida, Zachary Rail, 37, of Philadelphia, were all found guilty of seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. The four defendants and co-defendants, Dominique Pozzola, 45, of Rochester, New York, were also found guilty of obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to prevent members of Congress and federal law enforcement officers from discharging their duties, civil order, and destruction of government property. Pozzola was also found guilty of assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers and robbery involving government property. There were some other charges that they didn't convict them on. Um, they, I think they had to do with assaulting a cop um, or something like that. But it, the evidence wasn't strong enough to where the jury returned a conviction on it. All right, Chris Ray said that this case is a crucial step to hold criminally accountable those who attempted to undermine the peaceful transfer of power January 6th. The FBI will uphold the rights of all Americans, blah, 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 blah. Hundreds have already been held accountable for their conduct on January 6th, 2021. We're talking about a thousand people so far have been, have been charged. No, the feds were not helping the Proud Boys. The feds infiltrated the Proud Boys and gathered evidence on them and convicted them.
According to the evidence, the Proud Boys describe themselves as members of a pro-Western fraternal organization for men who refuse to apologize for creating the modern world, a.k.a. Western chauvinist. Through at least January 6, 2021, Tario was chairman of the organization. In September 2020, President Trump told the Proud Boys on national television, television debate to stand back and stand by, which is what they should have done, and they didn't do it. Thereafter, membership in the group increased dramatically. Proud Boys played a significant and often violent role in Washington, D.C. rallies in November and December 2020. During a rally in Washington, D.C. on December 12, 2020, Tario set a Black Lives Matter banner on fire. During that same rally, cooperating defendant Jeremy Bertino, who has also pled guilty to seditious conspiracy, was stabbed. In the aftermath... Tario created a special chapter of the Proud Boys known as the Ministry of Self-Defense. Beginning after December 19, 2020, Tario and his co-defendants, all of whom were leaders or members of the Ministry of Self-Defense, conspired to prevent, hinder, and delay the certification of the Electoral College vote and to oppose by force, by force the authority of the government of the United States. On January 6, 2021, the defendants directed, mobilized, and led a group of Proud Boys and other members of the crowd onto the Capitol grounds, leading to dismantling the metal barricades, destruction of property, breaching of the Capitol building, and assaults on law enforcement. During and after the attack, Tario and his co-defendants claimed credit for what had happened on social media and in an encrypted chat room. Um, There's a quote from Tario, and I don't think I saved it don't think I shared it on my Twitter. I think I may have started to share it in a post and then deleted it because I knew people would get triggered. And I was just kind of like, yeah, what's, what's the point? Um, is it in here? Maybe it was in this article. After January, while, while January 6 is going on, they were texting back and forth, and uh, Tario was directing some of the activities. And he said, There we go. Okay, it's back here in this article. I want to tell y'all what Tario said. All right. A week before January 6th, Tario received an email from a girlfriend with the document titled 1776 Returns, which contained an outline of a plan to assemble a large crowd in Washington and storm government buildings. Prosecutors had, whoa. Uh, We'll see if we come back. Uh oh. Well, we'll see if it comes back.
I'm waiting for things to come back online. My power came back immediately, but internet's taking a little while to come back up. If you're listening to the recording, then you didn't lose me. So on the podcast, you didn't lose me, but um, we'll see if the stream comes back up. Oh, I think it's coming back up. Maybe, 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 maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm back. I spoke so much truth. Uh, the power went out. That's the life I live. It's dangerous telling the truth. All right, I'm back. Sweet. All right. So what I was going to say. Back to this article. Tario gets this plan. Now, he gets the plan a week before January 6th. But the discussions leading up to what they were going to do on January 6th began weeks before that. So the fact he got this document a week before just means that they didn't put it down in writing until a week before, or at least into a whole document until a week before. But the discussions about what they were going to do and how they were going to stop Biden from taking office and how they were going to start um, what they were call what the Oath Keepers were referring to as our new Lexington. Those discussions began back in November. Oath Keepers were on it first and then Proud, Proud Boys came a little bit later, but both groups were aligned in what they were trying to accomplish that day. And it can't be argued that Tario, that this, he got this document and that he didn't use it or understand it or share it amongst his group. He definitely shared it amongst the group. And then he continued to refer to phrases in the document during January 6th, such as referring to the Winter Palace as a reference to the Capitol. They, in the document, they called the Capitol the Winter Palace. That was their name for it. So when he was referring to the Winter Palace and communications on the day of, he was doing so in order to refer to the document and what their plan was. Prosecutors also spent much of their case reconstructing the Proud Boys' march to the Capitol from Washington Monument on January 6th. Taro was not with them that day because he had been arrested on January 4th when he arrived in the city on charges for burning the BLM flag on December 12th. Prosecutors say he stayed in touch with allies from a hotel room in Baltimore and encouraged their actions on social media. This is true. Um, and by the way, one of the things that it really concerns me is that the day before January 6th, on January 5th, um, Enrique Tario and... Um, the Proud Boys guy, the main guy, I can't think of his name right now, Stuart Rhodes, met with um, Roger Stone in a parking garage of a hotel uh, on January 5th, on the night of January 5th. And um, I think Ali Alexander was there, uh, maybe some others. It's always bothered me that that meeting occurred. It's always bothered me. But anyway, the group assembled first thing on the morning of January 6th and marched straight past straight past the crowd at the at the ellipse and to the Capitol. 
The group assembled first thing in the morning of January 6th and marched straight to the Capitol, eschewing the massive crowd that gathered for Trump's speech at the Eclipse. They didn't care anything about Trump's speech. They weren't part of that crowd. Their mission the entire day was to go to the Capitol, tear down barriers, and try and trick MAGA into going in. When they arrived at the Capitol, Biggs was greeted by a man named Ryan Samsel, who was not a proud boy. Samsel would, moments later, charge at police lines and trigger the first breach of the barricades. Members of the Proud Boys group quickly followed suit. After Prozola helped trigger the breach of the building, Nordine, Biggs, and others surged inside with the broader mob, meandering until reinforcements helped outnumbered Capitol Police clear the crowd. That night, members of the group repeatedly expressed pride at their role in the events, and prosecutors noted this. They, sh- they believe that they were successful on January 6th, that they, that they were successful in what they wanted to do. And Tario even texted in their national chat to all the Proud Boys, make no mistake, we did this. And that's right. <laughs> we should make no mistake. The Proud Boys did this. They did January 6th. The defendants contended their defense was that prosecutors had vastly overstated the Proud Boys' role in January 6th. That was their first defense, okay? While they certainly trespassed, there was no evidence of a plan to derail the transfer of power, even though they literally had a plan to transfer or to derail the transfer of power. They literally had a plan to do just that. And the group's private chats were packed with hyperbole, locker room rhetoric, and evidence that the group was more concerned with Antifa than Congress. Now, I've had this thrown at me a number of times, that you can't, you can't blame the Proud Boys for what they did. It was just locker room talk. They were just, you know, talking. It was just bar talk. It was just, They were just talking shit to each other. Um, I could excuse it as that, right? If they didn't act on that talk, I would just regard it as locker room talk and stupid rhetoric and them saying things they shouldn't shouldn't say. If they hadn't then followed up that talk with the actions they described they were going to take. They have the First Amendment right to engage in all sorts of locker room talk. But when they act on it, it becomes more than just locker room talk. It becomes locker room planning. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Defense attorneys said the only Proud Boys plan was to pose for a photo op near the Capitol. Well, that's literally not true. Defense Defense lawyers also sought to lay blame for the violence at Trump's feet. Now, everybody who defends the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, by extension. You defend them because you think at the same time, it, or at least it feels like at the same time you're defending Trump. Remember this. The defense team for the Proud Boys tried to blame Trump for the violence in order to get the Proud Boys off. They contended that Trump's rhetoric that day was more to blame for the supporters breaching the Capitol than they were 
even though they arrived at the Capitol before the crowd and cleared the barriers so the crowd would have an easier way to get in and help break down doors and had a plan to do exactly that and to hold people hostage and to derail the transfer of power. But no, at the trial, they argued Trump was to blame. These guys are not MAGA. Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, they are not MAGA. They are not on Trump's side. They are not on our side. And while the story of their indictment and their trial makes for good clickbait, that unfortunately media on the right are addicted to producing every day. Um, that's about all it amounts to, is clickbait. These guys are not on our side. And so when I see the conviction, I say good. All right, next topic. Just real quick. Man, I want to present this story, but I actually don't know if this story is true. Um, so when we talk about SCOTUS for a while, and I said when that first article came out about um, Clarence Thomas that there's new reporting. Um, there's new reporting that uh, from ProPublica that Clarence Thomas was getting all these gifts from Harlan Crow, and that there's, you know, Clarence Thomas is basically swampy or whatever. Um, I don't think he is. And I, we went through that article together. There's been some follow-up articles since then where they're continuing to smear Thomas, but they're also smearing or trying to smear Alito. And um, there's someone, I can't remember if it was, they came up with an old story about Roberts. Roberts is another one they're trying to smear. The smear is on and the left is trying to get out ahead of these new reporting requirements for SCOTUS because they know that it's going to be nasty for a lot of SCOTUSes and judges who have been on the take for a long time and have been getting lots of gifts and have been engaging in um, uh, poor ethics while serving on the court. And so their first thing they had to do was they needed to make sure and smear Thomas most of all because they hate him. And if their favorite justices are going to get smeared, they're going to make sure that Thomas is smeared first, right? Um it's a Linsky type tactics. Well, Patriots in control. Patriots are in control, which is a true statement. And you should give them a follow over on Twitter. Um, pointed out that all of these magazines got their 4 a.m. talking points for sure. Because on the same day, they all came out with hit pieces on Clarence Thomas earlier this week. This, or yesterday, so on May 4th. Um, One of the latest accusations from ProPublica, ProPublica, is that Clarence Thomas had a child in private school and Harlan Crow paid the tuition. I have followed the People's Cube for a long time on Facebook and Twitter. And I don't know that this story he tells right here is true but it has the ring of truth to it. And I think it's true, but I'm going to get, before I tell you this, this is a statement from Mark Paletta, friend of justice Thomas. Okay. 
So it's not even the People's Cube statement. It's a statement from Mark Poletta. And I just want to offer this too, because it pay I want to this is how fake news works, right? Like this is such a great example of fake news. They find a document or whatever that alleges that Clarence Thomas got this kid's tuition paid for by Harlan Crow and isn't this terrible? $150,000. But then you read this statement from Mark and it it's a horse of a different color. And it this is this keeps happening. They did this in the first article where they smeared Thomas for um, going on these trips paid for by Harlan Crow and go and going to these like the Adirondacks resort. But then you go and read the article and you dig down and you find out that the staff said that this is how Harlan Crow treats all of his friends. So it's no special treatment to Thomas. And then you find out that Harlan Crow has never had a case in front of the court. And so there hasn't been a conflict of interest there. Whereas with other justices, we're going to, we've learned there's been a couple of them so far. We've learned that they have had cases before the court um, and have engaged in unethical behavior. But anyway, here's the statement from Mark, which paints it in a different cont- different light completely. And so remember this, if somebody is trying to uh, smear Thomas over this, here is the backstory. The Thomases have rarely spoken publicly about the remarkably generous efforts to help a child in need. They have always respected the privacy of this young man and his family, and it is disappointing and painful, but unsurprising that some journalists and critics cannot do the same. The Thomases, quietly and honorably, devoted 12 years of their lives to helping a beloved child in desperate need of love and support and guidance. In 1997, Justice Thomas and his wife brought their great nephew to live with them. They agreed to take in this young child as Justice Thomas's grandparents had done for him and his brother in 1955. Justice Thomas's grandparents changed the trajectory of his life, and the Thomases hoped to do the same for a child in need. Justice Thomas and his wife made immeasurable personal and financial sacrifices and poured every ounce of their lives and hearts into giving their great nephew a chance to succeed. In the summer of 2006, the Thomases were struggling to find a school where they could send their great-nephew. In discussing these challenges with their dear friends, Harlan and Kathy Crow, Harlan recommended that the Thomases consider one more option, sending their great-nephew to Randolph-Macon Academy. Harlan had attended Randolph-Macon, and he thought the school would be a good fit. Harlan had financially supported Randolph-Macon since the 1980s and funded scholarships for students there from disadvantaged backgrounds. Harlan offered to pay the first year of Justice Thomas's great-nephew's tuition in 2006, and that payment went directly to the school. Harlan Crow's office confirmed that he did not pay the great-nephew's tuition for any other year at Randolph-Macon. After some time, Randolph-Macon recommended the great-nephew attend a boarding school in Georgia for one year. Harlan offered to pay the first year of tuition for their great-nephew at the Georgia school, and again, those tuition payments went directly to the school. By the next year, 2009, the Thomas's great-nephew returned to Randolph-Macon. He moved back to Savannah in December 2009 after he turned 18. The Thomases love their great-nephew. It is despicable that the press has dragged him into the effort to smear Justice Thomas. The story is yet another attempt to manufacture a scandal about Justice Thomas. Let's be clear about what is supposedly scandalous now. 
just as Thomas and his wife devoted 12 years of their lives to taking in and caring for a beloved child who was not their own, just as Justice Thomas's grandparents had done for him. They made many personal and financial sacrifices to do this, and along the way, their friends joined them in doing everything possible to give this child a future. Harlan Crow's tuition payments made directly to these schools on behalf of Justice Thomas's great-nephew did not constitute a reportable gift. Justice Thomas was not required to disclose the tuition payments made directly to Randolph-Macon and the Georgia School on behalf of his great-nephew because the definition of a dependent child under the Ethics and Government Act does not include a great-nephew. It is limited to son, daughter, stepson, or stepdaughter. Justice Thomas never asked Harlan Crow to pay for his great-nephew's tuition, and neither Harlan Crow nor his company had any business before the Supreme Court. This malicious story shows nothing except for the fact that the Thomases and the Crows are kind, generous, and loving people who tried to help this young man. Horse of a different color when you learn the whole story. In the mix of all that, Recently, this is a little bit old. This is from 428. But Alito said that he has a pretty good idea of the identity of the decision leaker in Dobbs. And he said it during an interview with two Wall Street Journal opinion writers. Um, he said that, it, that the leak created an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust. And he said, I personally have a pretty good idea who is responsible, but that's different from the level of proof that is needed to name somebody. And I have to agree, and that is what the report said. If you guys remember, we went over the report that came out about the investigation into the leak, and it was obvious they had a good idea. They had fingerprints, they had devices, they um, were interviewing people, and the report basically said, unless somebody comes forward as a witness, or the person admits it to someone, and then they come and report it, they're at a the investigation kind of dead ended because there's enough evidence to have like an idea of who may have been involved, but they can't prove it. And the report also said that they're not sure exactly how it was disseminated. If I remember correctly, it said that it wasn't sure exactly how it were disseminated the means by which. So they don't have the evidence of, okay, it went from this person to then these people. There's just a lack of evidence, um, but it's enough to where they have an idea, a general, possibly a belief or a suspicion of who did it or who was involved, but they can't prove it. That's unfortunate, but I still kind of feel like that was a white hat op, so maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Do I want to go to that next? Think, hold on this moment. I'm thinking about where I want to go next. We'll go to the Biden scandal. Let's, let's go ahead and do the Biden scandal. Okay. All right. Oh, there was a rumble rant. Dina, thank you very much. 
Thank, thank you very much. Hey, they have instructed me to go and celebrate with a good cigar. I don't need to be told to do that twice. I will take you up on that offer, and I will definitely, definitely, definitely smoke a cigar today. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. So first on May 2nd, we had... Um, we had uh, Hunter go and appear in this paternity hearing. And uh, shout out to Karma Patriot, who's in Arkansas and actually went to the hearing, actually went to the courthouse and did some act- like footwork, did some gumshoe journalism and got a few videos. And um, yeah, pretty cool that she was able to go do that. Hunter Biden caused this to happen. I talked about it on Devolution Power Hour on Wednesday that he was already had an arrangement with this lady, Abby Lowe or Lau, and um, he decided he needs to lower his payments, which opened this all up. President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, will need to sit for a sworn deposition and answer additional written questions about his investments, art sales and other financial transactions as part of a paternity related case. The judge has ordered at an extraordinary two hour court hearing with all parties in attendance. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lau, revealed that his client is paying $20,000 a month in child support and has given a total of $750,000 to London Roberts. That's the woman, an Arkansas woman who is the mother of their four year old daughter. Lau told the judge he wanted to refute recent tabloid articles that called Hunter a deadbeat dad and that he wanted to let the world know that he is paying what he's agreed to. And I got I got to agree with that. Like I saw these articles saying that Hunter was a deadbeat dad. And I have to admit, I kind of like automatically believe them, you know, because like all the noise around Hunter, it seems like he would be a deadbeat dad or at least not a very good dad at all. Right. And then you hear about a paternity case and you think, oh, that scumbag crackhead Hunter Biden doesn't want to pay the, his child support with a POS, right? And you like, you just, your mind just kind of goes there, but then you find out he's been paying $20,000 a month and you're like, Whoa, that changes things. <laughs> um, I mean, how, how much money should he be required to pay a month in child support? 20,000 seems like quite a bit. Um, Maybe it should be more. I don't know, but that's a lot. Independence County Circuit Court Judge Holly Meyer also chided Hunter Biden's lawyers for hiding information that should be public and ordered them to resubmit their filings without redactions. She made the comments during a two-hour hearing that Hunter Biden personally attended. Quote, the ability to redact is being somewhat abused, she told Hunter Biden's legal team. Now, the hearing was convened after Hunter Biden asked to reduce the monthly payments, which when you're paying $20,000 a month. Seems kind of reasonable to ask if it could be lowered, especially if you're out of work. The two sides are now locked in a legal legal tussle over which documents he needs to hand over to Roberts as part of the discovery process. She and outspoken GOP lawyers want many of the same financial records that House Republicans are trying to obtain for their own Hunter Biden probes. Now, isn't that interesting? Funny that... Funny that Hunter Biden would cause a hearing to be had about payments for child support 
that he had to have known and his attorney, attorney had to have known that him asking to reopen this thing and to renegotiate his payments would open him up to discovery of documents that GOP lawyers and representatives in the House, the same ones they're trying to get access to. It's almost like Hunter Biden is purposefully doing things that expose him and his dad's crimes. It's almost like Hunter Biden is doing exactly what you wouldn't do if you were trying to hide things. <laughs> um, I mean, it's reasonable. It's reasonable for him to ask, like, hey, is there any way I could pay less than $20,000 a month? It's reasonable, so I mean, maybe it's as simple as that, but he had to have known. And definitely his lawyer were contacted by, I mean, they had to know, the Bidens have to know that this is going to open him up. And even if like some of this stuff is filed like under seal or something, it's going to come out. There's public interest. It's going to come out. Hunter Biden's lawyers need to provide written answers. Man, these stupid allergies. I hate trees and flowers. <laughs> uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers need to provide written answers by May 12th, and his deposition will take place in mid-June, the judge said. If the parties don't reach an agreement to adjust the monthly payments, a trial is scheduled for late July. And I hope there's a trial, and I hope that our friend Karma Patriot can go and be our citizen reporter at it. That would be great if she could go and thread it. Start, start, start uh, planning for time off right now, um, Karma. You might need to get a, yourself a buy me a coffee link to uh, to help support your citizen journalism. All right, now next thing that happened. Um, is that as evidence emerges in Hunter Biden probe, investigators see protection racket. Evidence points to another example of a privileged Democrat getting away with things that no average working taxpaying American would get away with, says Rep Comer. Now, this is from May 2nd. And it says a letter falsely insinuating a laptop was Russian disinformation and IRS whistleblower, suspicious activity, bank reports. Suggestions of false testimony to Congress, et cetera, et cetera. The more investigators dig into evidence in the Hunter Biden scandal that was kept from the public for years, the more they have become concerned. The first family was protected by a political cone of silence that prevented voters from making an informed choice in 2020. Funny that. Two new sensational allegations burst into public Tuesday as Johnson joined fellow Senator Chuck Grassley. It's been Grassley and Johnson this whole time building up the stack of evidence to formally accuse Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, a close lieutenant 
a close lieutenant of President Joe Biden, of giving Congress a patently false account in 2020 about his earlier dealings with Hunter Biden. On December, quote, on December 22nd, 2020, you provided false testimony to Congress during your voluntarily transcribed interview. The senators wrote in a letter to the secretary demanding he preserve and turn over all records of his and his wife's contacts with Hunter Biden. You can read the letter here. We're going to pull that up. Now, the current controversy deals with Blinken's testimony about contacts with Hunter Biden back when Blinken served as Deputy Secretary of State under Obama. When asked at the time whether he ever spoke with Hunter Biden on the phone, Blinken said, not that I recall. He also said he had not spoken to Hunter Biden over email or text messages. Well, emails from Hunter Biden's laptop indicate Blinken corresponded with Hunter Biden at least twice and that the secretary's wife, Evan Ryan, also communicated with Hunter Biden. Quote, because your testimony is inaccurate, Congress and the public must rely on your records as the source of information about your dealings with Team Biden. While that battle goes on, you have CIA Director Mike Morrell that eventually that had a letter and he said eventually he was contacted by Blinken and he was asked to assemble the 51 former and current U.S. intelligence officials to write that letter in October 2020 saying Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinfo. Last month, Morrell testified before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees that a conversation he had with Blinken, then a Joe Biden campaign advisor, quote, triggered his decision to organize the fall 2020 letter. That's a good word. That's a nice, strong action word. Wasn't just like prompted. Prompted would be an okay one, but this is triggered which means caused to happen. He said, while Blinken did not ask him specifically to send the letter, the future secretary did send him information that became key to the letter. And the Biden campaign subsequently helped organize press coverage of the letter. Also on Tuesday, Rep. Scott Perry, a high-profile conservative who played a key role in the deal that landed Kevin McCarthy House Speakership, wrote key oversight committees on both cham- in both chambers of Congress, urging them to investigate whether the Justice Department has let presidential son Hunter Biden off easy. Perry's letter this week was prompted by a Just the News report that emails on Hunter Biden's laptop seized by the FBI in 2019 state the presidential son had been warned in 2017 that he failed to declare $400,000 in income from his controversial Russia holding jobs in Ukraine dating to 2014 and owed back taxes. Now, this is the this is the little piece of info that I was talking about um, briefly on Devolution Power Hour on Wednesday night, where I said that there was a $400,000 payment from Burisma that there was ac- there's accusations that Hunter's being led off on that one, that one of the reasons... Um, there's some allegations that why sort of the department is stalling or the IRS whistleblower saying they're stalling here is they're trying to let the statute of limitations expire on this $400,000 thing. And then he won't be charged with that. And I speculated on devolution power hour that, you know, that could be one way where they're doing a favor or they're doing something for Hunter Biden that is kind of like a plea bargain, but they're not putting it on paper. So they're going to allow the statute of limitations to expire on this and 
they're going to hit him with some other things, but he gets off on this bigger charge because of the statute of limitations. And it could be that that's done on purpose as a favor his direction because he's come their direction on this other stuff. And the reason I had that idea, it wasn't just out of nowhere. I had that idea because I had watched a couple documentaries recently on different mob trials and um, mob investigations. And there was one where prosecutors did that. They slow walked a prosecution in order to let the statute of limitations expire on some older crimes as a favor to the, the, the target and then indicted him on these other crimes that were still within the statute of limitations. And he pled guilty to them because he ended up getting a lesser charge and the prosecutors let the older ones roll off or expire. And it was a way to do a deal with him without putting it on paper that they had done a deal, if that makes sense. Another thing I saw in one of these documentaries that's worth mentioning, and it reminds me of Epstein. You guys probably know that I'm of the opinion that Epstein is still alive and that they faked his death in order to get him into witness protection program. Um, I've been trying to find an example to back up my theory on this, an example of where it's it's been done before. And I found an example... I would have to go back and find the guy's name um, of a terrorist who was arrested in the early 2000s, I believe it was, or maybe it was the late 2000s. Um, they arrested the the F, they arrested this terrorist and they charged him with um, various crimes and he was convicted, but then they put off sentencing and the guy still hasn't been sentenced. It's been like 15 years, I want to say. And the guy hasn't been sentenced, even though he's been convicted. And what's going on is that they convicted him and then moved him into the witness protection wing of a prison where they continue to extract information from him, but they've never sentenced him. And so he's in this weird limbo, this weird like purgatory place where he's in witness protection and he's in prison, but he hasn't been sentenced. And his eventual sentence is going to end up being dependent on how much information he provides, basically, is the idea. So I thought that was kind of similar to what I think is going on with Epstein, where they needed to put him in witness protection. And so they to do that, they faked his death. And it was pretty, I think it was pretty easy to do. Um, anyway, I found that example. I also found another example um, this is a long time ago. I found an example of where police, um, it was an organized crime group that they were investigating and they thought one of their, one of their people was dead, but he wasn't. And the police, uh, they didn't, the police didn't fake his death, but the, the, the rumors were already out that the guy was dead and the, he was actually in police custody and the police just allowed that to continue. They just didn't tell anybody they had the guy in custody and allowed media and the organized criminal group to think the guy was dead while he was really in custody. So they didn't fake it, but they allowed that false information and narrative to continue because it was advantageous. I think, I think similarly with Epstein. Anyway, back to this, back to this. Sorry, I went on a little bit of a tangent. So you have all these things going on with Hunter right here, all these different angles coming at. It seems like the Hunter story 
is it is so huge. And I wanted to see this document. Can I can I search this document? I can control F some of it. Some of it is a PDF and it's images, so I can't I can't control F those. I wanted to see if this hit on a Q delta. Um, I'll go ahead and show y'all what I'm thinking about. So me and Kim Sachs over on um, True Social were looking at some deltas from the other day. We were looking at, um, I think it was May 1st. What caught our eye was a filing in a different case. Okay, so on May 1st, there's a Q drop that just says de facto standard. And it's from May 1st, 2020. And so we were looking for any drops that might have de facto stand or any news from a May 1st or April 30th that might say de facto standard in it. So I was going to control F this for de facto standard, but not every, not everything in here. No. Is uh, this came out on May 1st when I thought, oh, I wonder if this has any of that in it. Some of these are images, though, so I can't control F them. Ah, I didn't mean to open that up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Mermaid Miss K, good morning. Why do you say LinkedIn guy going down? Is there news? Is there news on him? That's the guy that's bankrolling the uh, Gene Carroll case. And was and paid money to Fusion GPS. I'm scanning this real quick to see if I de facto jumps out to me. Yeah, Reed Hoffman. Uh, Bear BL, thank you very much for that Rumble rant. That's extremely generous of you. Thank you so much. I will definitely spend it on myself. <laughs> and I might, I might spend a little bit on my kids too. Just a little bit. Iowa Trump, thank you very much. Yeah, have, it is Cinco de Mayo. Oh man, I know what I'm cooking tonight. It is Cinco de Mayo. Man, okay, yeah, I'm definitely making quesadillas or fajitas tonight. Probably won't go out because the restaurants will be crazy. I'll make Mexican at home. All right, so more on this Hunter Biden thing. New email services from Mike Morrell to John Brennan. So this is in addition to the other, other stuff we got from um, Mike Morrell. First, we had Mike Morrell. I want to make sure I have these in orders. This is May 5th. Okay, that's newer. Okay, so we have a new email. Oh, Trace Leches. Oh, my gosh. I know. I love Trace Leches. I like Flan, too. Um, I'm Stop. I'm going to get hungry now. All right, new email services from Mike Morrell to John Brennan. So we already had Morrell's testimony, right? where Morell was talking about how he was contacted to get this letter going. But now we have a new email from him where it's a message to John Brennan regarding the 51 agents who signed that letter. And it says, John, can I add your name to the list? Trying to give the campaign, particularly during the debate on Thursday, a talking point to push back on the Trump issue. That is huge. That is absolutely huge. Let me make sure this is unmuted. 
and oh, I need to turn y'all's audio on. This is a very professional show. There we Here go. Here is the news. Just a short while ago, Just the News obtained this email. This is a very important email. It comes from the former CIA director, Mike Morrell. Yes, the guy that organized that letter from the 51 intelligence professionals who tried to fake you into thinking that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation when it wasn't. Uh, it is between him and John Brennan, one of the signatories. You know who John Brennan is. He was Obama's CIA director, right? He's the guy that told Obama, hey, Hillary Clinton is doing a dirty trick on Donald Trump called Russia collusion. Well, this is just before the presidential debate between Donald Trump and Hunter uh, and uh, Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's laptop is, is flinging out there. This is what Mike Morrell, former CIA director, tells his successor, John Brennan. Hey, sign this letter because I'm, quote, trying to give the campaign, particularly during the debate on Thursday, a talking point to push back on Trump on this issue. A man with a security clearance, a man with the title of CIA director, knew that he wasn't creating an intelligence product, uh, a, a Merrick civic duty with 51 people. He was trying to create a political moment. Damning evidence. We'll try to find out if Congress has this letter, but this is a very important piece. It is the ultimate proof that what went out on that letter was a political dirty trick coordinated with the Biden campaign. Here is the. Here is the letter and it says, OK, Michael, add my name to the list. Good initiative. Thanks for asking me to sign on. That's what John Brennan wrote back. To Mike Morrell, who had written him and said, John, can I add your name to the list? We'll be adding Leon. So Leon Panetta, Sue Gordon, Jay Johnson. George, Lisa Monaco, and Mike Rogers today. And working on adding Dan Coates, Mike Rogers, HPSCI, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and Tom Bossert, and lots of other intelligence community career folks trying to give the campaign, particularly during the debate on Thursday, a talking point to push back on Trump on this issue. So this isn't just him you know, we had him saying like, well, they triggered me. I was contacted. And so I reached out to other colleagues in the intelligence community. No, like he's confessed. I mean, he, this is a confession. I'm trying to give the campaign a talking point to push back on Trump. Now let's look and see who all signed that letter. I want to see the letter. Can I see the letter here? Okay, this group analyzes the I just want to link to the letter. Where is the letter? No, no, no. I want the link to the letter. I want the actual letter. Sorry, I should have pulled this up before the show. I want the actual letter. Nope, it's not in there. Give me a link to the letter. Oh, oh, this may get spies who lie.
media conspired. Where is the link? So we got Hayden Clapper, Leon Panetta, John Brennan, Thomas Fingar, Rick Leggett, John McLaughlin, Mike Morell. Mike. Okay, this one has the names anyway. Doug Weiss, John Moseman, Larry Pfeiffer, Russ Travers, Jeremy Bash. I just want to see all the names on here. Look at how many are CIA. Look at how many are CIA. <laughs> Bruce Carrions, Colby Corsell Davis, Hall, Carrington, Hepburn. Ron Marks. I wanted to see who all signed it because I wanted to compare it with the list he was working on to see how many he successfully got to sign it. Legit Clapper Hayden. That was a pro move, Kyle. Close everything. So I, w I wanted to see if how many of these actually signed. Like Mike Rogers, that was one I was really interested in to see if he signed. Um, all right, so there's that right there. And then we also had this story from America First Legal. Uh, Pancake Patriot, thank you for the rumble rant. He said, could the letter be part of an exposure op for those who signed on to it? And did John figure out the joke about his angel paste lotion next to the computer? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, on your first question, maybe. I could see the letter. I need to think on that. I need to think on how the letter could actually have been bait to get all these get all these IC people to sign on to it and then later get exposed as interfering with the 2020 election. Right. Because what they did was inter it was election interference, right? It was absolutely election interference. Um, your second question about John, I can answer right now. So after devolution power, if you guys don't know, you're missing out on devolution power. We had a hilarious ad read for angel paste, which is a great product. And I do have some, and uh, I just got some the other day in the mail uh, yesterday, actually. And uh, it's great stuff. Um, but we had a funny joke. We had a funny moment during the ad read on it. And after the show, after the show ended, John was like, "You mother!" Like <laughs> he was, he was, he was griping at me and BB a little bit, and we were laughing and. Uh, you just couldn't have planned that comedy routine any better. Um, he caught on. He said that he figured out why we, he didn't know why we were laughing at first, but he caught on about 30 seconds later and realized what was going on. And um, but it was too late. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. Um, he so innocently just like said that and kept on going, not thinking at all about what how it could be interpreted. Oh, it was so good. All right. 
So America First Legal, I got two things to read from them, and I need to speed the show up so I can get through all this stuff. New emails obtained from our lawsuit against the National Archives provide further evidence that Hunter Biden's personal business activities co-mingled with Joe Biden's official business. They can't, this, this thread came out on the first day, um, or on the same day, excuse me, as this other stuff about Hunter Biden. On May 18, 2009, Alan Hoffman, Deputy Chief of Staff to the Vice President, sent an email to Michael Mongan, Deputy Counsel to the Vice President, with the subject line, Forward Ethiopia. Right there. The email was withheld because its release, quote, would disclose confidential advice between the President and his advisors or between such advisors. More below, there's the PRA restrictions to FOIA. P5 release would disclose confidential advice between the president and his advisors. However, we know from Chuck Grassley and Senator Johnson, their joint committee majority staff report that Hunter was a secret service protectee on an official trip to Ethiopia in 2009. If Hunter's trip to Ethiopia only involved his personal business with Seneca Global Advisors, Biden's White House advisor's discussion about Hunter's trip would not have involved confidential advice to the president. Chuck Grassley and Senator Johnson's supplemental report indicates that Hunter maintained an equity stake in Seneca Global Advisors, according to financial documents financial documents relating to CEFC, the CCP-affiliated company Hunter agreed to advise. On seventh of May, twenty seventh of May. Or no, excuse me, I'm misreading that. On May 22nd, 2009, Jennifer Pruitt emailed Hunter's Rosemont Seneca business partner, Eric Schwerin, and CC'd Hunter Biden, Nancy Massey, Rob Walker, who's a Biden family associate who received more money from the CEFC, Nelson Peacock, former Biden Senate staffer and assistant secretary of Homeland Security, Edward Pruitt, Hunter Biden's financial advisor involved with suspicious transactions flagged by Treasury, and Matt Fitzsimmons. The National Archives withheld this record in full because allegedly the record was a personal record that was misfiled according to the Presidential Records Act. While Hunter's activities with Seneca Global Advisors Rosemont Seneca, Rob Walker, and his financial advisors would seem personal in nature. The involvement of political appointees in the White House and DHS infer that Hunter's activities were co-mingled with VP Biden's official business during the Obama admin. As such, the National Archives improperly withheld the record under the Presidential Records Act. On July 14, 2009, Hunter Biden's business associate, Eric Schwerin, emailed Hunter and the VP's Deputy Chief of Staff, Alan Hoffman, at his personal email address about, quote, Mr. Gang's visit. NARA withheld the email in full because its release, quote, would disclose confidential advice between the president and his advisors or between such advisors. On that day, China Foreign Ministry spokesman Ken Gang spoke at a press conference addressing China's arrest of employees of Rio Tinto, the world's second largest metals and mining corporation, for alleged bribery and espionage. 
Because the National Archives withheld the email in full, it is unclear what was communicated between Hunter's private business associate and his father's White House staff, and whether it was related to the topic addressed by Mr. Gang. However, keep reading. According to the New York Times, Hunter Biden's CCP-backed investment fund, Bohai Harvest RST, or BHR, was heavily involved with financing China's acquisition of mining interest around the world, presumably in competition with Rio Tinto. According to documents obtained by GOP Oversight, Eric Schwerin was the president of the since-dissolved investment fund Rosemont Seneca Partners, which, according to Grassley and Johnson, their joint committee majority staff report was merged with CCP-linked Bohai Capital to form BHR. So on the same day that a CCP official was addressing allegations of political retaliation against Rio Hunt, Rio Tinto, Hunter's business partner involved with CCP backing mining deals was reaching out to VP Biden's deputy chief of staff about that CCP's official visit, upcoming official visit. Raising further concern by applying a P5 exemption to the record, the National Archives indicates that it contains, quote, confidential advice between the president and his advisors or between such advisors. If the National Archives is asserting that Eric Schwerin was an official advisor to VP Biden, that relationship has not been previously disclosed and raises the specter of serious ethics violations stemming from the conflict of interest. Alternatively, this is just another example of the National Archives unlawfully withholding a record from the American public through an improper application of the Presidential Records Act. The National Archives continues to abuse the Presidential Records Act to unlawfully conceal these emails and the evidence of the Biden family's corruption. Now, that is a hell of a coincidence, and it's not a coincidence at all. We know that. That there's an email about Mr. Gang's visit between these individuals and it's being, and it came on the same day that gang spoke about the arrest of these employees of Rio Tinto. I wonder if this document's going to drop soon. Good work by America first legal. I see some discussion about whether or not it was Mike Rogers from the NSA that was referred to in that, that email. Let me go back to it. Because I believe who they're talking about is Mike Rogers from, well, they're talking about both. Both of them are mentioned in this email. Let let me, I'll show you. Pardon me, I should have muted the mic. I'm sorry. Um, Right, This Mike Rogers right here, in parentheses, it says director NSA. So that one is talking about him he says we'll be adding director nsa mike rogers to the 51 intelligence officers list that's what he's talking about is he's trying to get him on there and then he says he's working on adding mike rogers hpsci that's the house permanent select committee on intelligence that's representative mike rogers um who seems pretty swampy to me but that's why that's another reason why I wanted to look and see the 51 intelligence officials to see if Mike Rogers, director NSA, had signed on to it. I don't think he did. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't reached out to to see if they could get him to sign it. 
Okay. There is a, another. Next. So now it's come out. And I know this is a bit old news because now it's Friday. But now the reporting is, especially according to Washington Post, that prosecutors are nearing charging decision on Hunter Biden case. We've we've been here. Remember last July, there was a story that that all the media used the same language. Um, Hunter Biden investigation re- nearing or reaching critical juncture. They kept calling it a critical juncture. Um. And something happened last summer where they hit that critical juncture and they didn't bring any charges. And then now we're in the spring of the next year and they're saying they're breaching it. They're nearing a decision. I pointed out in devilish empower that I think it's really notable that Hunter Biden and his lawyers were, um, they they reached out to DOJ to have the meeting with Weiss and DOJ. And that's typically something that happens before you get charged. You go and have a meeting with your defense lawyers, with the prosecutor to try and dissuade them from charging you <laughs> to see if you can come to some deal, right? Um, that would not be unusual. And it seems like that may have happened. Now, there's another, I got another video here from John Solomon talking about this letter. Um, and I like the point that he makes. Hold on just a moment. It's only been about an hour. There's been a lot of condemnation coming out from career professionals who didn't sign the letter. I want to just read you one of them if you give me the chance, because uh, I think it's such well, a powerful I, I think statement. I actually have this. Is this you're talking about yeah. uh, retired Kevin FBI Brock. Intel chief Kevin Brock? Yep. All right, yeah. let's put let's it up just, on the screen. I, this is important. Let's let's show our audience this. Kevin Brock worked for Bob Mueller. He's one of the most trust, trusted FBI executives retired in the community. Everybody trusts this guy. This is what he said. This wasn't just a talking point to toss back at Trump. It was a premeditated and admitted lie to the American people designed specifically to deceive and hide the truth. Um, and for what? To help elect a politician? What a steep and sad cost to the soul for such a meager goal. What a rebuke from someone that practiced the intelligence rules the way they were supposed to be, who didn't sign the letter. Our spies intervened in the 2020 election to help Joe Biden and to hurt Donald Trump. And there's no other way to read this email. They had, the FBI had the laptop in December of 2019. You told me that they verified the authenticity in the spring of 2020. Okay, then why was the FBI in the months leading up to the, that election, why were they meeting weekly with big tech and telling them that they may be a victim of misinformation campaigns and it may be about Hunter and Joe Biden? Uh, did they know that Rudy Giuliani would likely uh, leak that? Well, remember something else. They also tried to fool Senator Johnson and Grassley. They gave a bogus intelligence operation trying to throw Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson off the scent of the Hunter Biden family. The entire intelligence community, FBI, CIA, these former retired people, they were all working to create the false illusion that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden didn't have a problem, a problem we now all are dealing with while he's president. They worked together to try to deceive the American people. American spies influenced the 2020 American election. Not Russian spies, not Iranian, Chinese, North Korean. American spies did it. And they used the tactics they learned as intelligence professionals, creating false illusions, false realities. We call it propaganda or psyops. They did it to the American people. They fooled us into thinking we shouldn't trust the laptop. Wow. John. 
I like that. I like that line from John Solomon that American spies did this. They American spies influenced the 2020 presidential election. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that. I have one. Oh, just a moment. I got um. Actually, I'll skip this because I'm gonna run out of time. I wanted to grab. I wanted to grab what I talked about on um, devolution power of the other day, but I've I've missed it. I've obviously misplaced the document I was gonna pull up to show. All right, let me move on because we're going to run out of time. Trump seeks to move New York hush money criminal case to federal court. Trump is trying to move his New York criminal case, the one that Bragg brought. It's about hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels to federal court, out of state court, saying the Manhattan district attorney's charges are tied to Trump's duties as president. Now, this is an article to read carefully. In a court filing Thursday, Trump's lawyers also hinted at how they may defend the, pre- the former president, arguing that the re- reimbursement payments made to then-personal attorney Michael Cohen were not falsified business records. This case is unprecedented in our nation's history. The filing states never before has a local elected prosecutor criminally prosecuted a defendant, either for conduct that occurred entirely while the defendant was the sitting president of the United States or for conduct that related to federal campaign contribution laws. Prosecutors allege that Trump falsified business records when he repaid Cohen for hush money payments made during the 2016 campaign to women who claimed they had extramarital affairs with Trump, which he denies. Prosecutors allege the intent was to conceal criminal conduct that hid damaging information about Trump during the election. Trump has pled not guilty. In Thursday's file, Thursday's filing, Trump attorneys wrote that the former president, quote, denies these records were false. Trump, quote, will assert that the statements in the purported business records at issue were, in fact, truthful statements because the money paid to Michael Cohen was, in part, retainer or legal payments to Michael Cohen to act as President Trump's personal attorney. Trump told Trump attorney Todd Blanche told New York Judge Merchant during the trial end of a procedural he- during the tail end of a procedural hearing Thursday, Trump's legal team would file the motion to move the case in what appears to be a bid to try and undercut Manhattan Brat Manhattan DA Bragg's case against Trump. Still, the move could add another issue that would need to be litigated ahead of the, the trial next year. Here's the issue. According to CNN legal analyst and former federal and state prosecutor, Ellie Honig, quote, while Trump can seek to remove a state-level criminal charge to federal court, he'd have to establish that the conduct somehow involved his performance of official duties as president. So I want to toss something out there. What if that is the case? 
what if that is the case that Trump's payments to Michael Cohen are in some way related to his to Trump's duties as president and his work as president? What if there's something about this that actually makes this part of Trump's duties as president and he is able to move it to a federal court? And what if these business records aren't falsified? See, one one thing about this I keep thinking about is like it's all Stormy Daniels is over here like talking in um like she's leading people to infer things. And she's misspoke a number of times, right? And she's gone she's flipped and flopped and gone back and forth about an NDA and a, an affair and all this stuff. I I just I just got this idea that there's something missing here between Trump and Daniels and Cohen. There's something there's something missing in this whole thing where media reporting is making it all about some sort of hush money scheme. And I don't think that matches up well to exactly what is going on. And we're just, everybody's just assuming the infer the natural inference, and it's a reasonable inference, is that Trump was making these payments to Cohen to reimburse him for payments he made to Stormy. But there's also this NDA that Stormy had. And Michael Cohen had that, yeah, that's right. Um Jason of GTA of TGA. Good morning. That's right. Cohen had his his little shell company and there was all that money coming through it. I don't know. I I I read this and I think there's a hint of the I think there's foreshadowing in this. I think this is possible foreshadowing. This right here that the statements were true. And it was in part a retainer for legal payments. In part, it was the retainer or legal payments to Michael Cohen. And that it falls under Trump's official duties as president. Somehow this connects to Trump's duties as president. It'll be interesting to see. All right. Um, real quick for the first time, Jack Smith set in on a grand jury hearing and it was with vice president Pence. Um, apparently Pence testified for more than five hours last week is the reporting and that Smith and Pence interacted while Pence was at the courthouse and their interaction was described as respectful it's the first time that it's been reported that special counsel Smith attended a grand jury proceeding in the investigation. He may have attended others, but this is the first time it's been reported that he was there and was observing the grand jury proceeding. 
I'm not particularly worried about it. I know some people are, but I'm not particularly worried about it. Next. Peter Thiel gave some interesting comments to this podcast. Billionaire tech investor Peter Thiel said he's reluctant to move his operations to Florida from Silicon Valley because of the housing prices in Florida. And he talked about how housing prices in Florida have basically quadrupled and set over the, or doubled in a couple of years. And um, he was talking to Barry Weiss. And um, that was part of the conversation, but that led into him talking about Ron DeSantis. And Thiel who it says is a one-time advisor to former president Trump. But uh, Thiel is a, was a massive backer of not just president Trump, but also other America first candidates, including, um, JD Vance this past go round. Um, Thiel's a big player in GOP politics. And of course he's worth, you know, over $8 billion. Um, but what he says DeSantis has made a crusade. He said, well, right here, he says, DeSantis needs to focus more on economic inequality and less on issues like gender identity and race. Quote, that kind of economic cost is probably not enough to offset all the wokeness in the world or even the taxes. And he, what he was saying is that, you know, like DeSantis is focusing on all this woke and identity politics and culture stuff, but I'm looking at the prices of homes in his states and his state and I'm looking at taxes and, you know, it's the economy, stupid. The culture war is important, but the economy is most important. DeSantis has made a crusade against what he calls the woke, the centerpiece of his mandate as governor. He's widely expected to run against Trump for the GOP nomination um, in 2024 with cultural issues at the core of, a, of any national campaign. Quote, I think DeSantis, this is Teal talking, I think DeSantis would make a terrific president. If he's the Republican nominee, I will strongly support him in 2024. But I do worry that focusing on the woke issue as ground zero is not quite enough. Teal is a Republican mega donor who has backed candidates who leaned into the culture wars. He urged DeSantis to focus more on economic inequality in Florida. He previously said he has no plans to donate to candidates for office in 2024, according to a person familiar with his thinking, citing frustration over the Republican Party's preoccupation with culture war issues. Quote, the focus on identity politics and the woke is probably a distraction from stagnation. I understand why DeSantis doesn't talk about that, but it surely is a bigger problem. Um, I agree with Peter Thiel on that. Broadly, broadly, I completely agree with them that focusing on identity politics and the culture stuff, like, I think it's important, but I also think it serves as clickbait and rage bait far too often. And I also think it's a distraction from more important topics. But I don't think we should give up on the culture war. I just think that when it comes to a campaign, especially a national campaign, it's the economy, stupid. And I really think that's the point that Peter Thiel is making here is that the economy is what focusing on economic issues is what's going to get you votes. 
the cultural issue stuff probably isn't going to get you votes, but it does risk turning off voters. Um, but another thing I noticed here, he previously said he has no plans to donate to candidates running for office in 2024. But at the same time, he says that he would strongly back the Republican nominee if it was DeSantis. Um, I think what Teal is broadcasting here is that he is undecided. He hasn't, he hasn't decided on who he's going to support in 2024. And he's putting that out there by saying he has no plans. He's saying I haven't decided in my opinion. Um, but broadly, I agree with everything Peter Thiel says right here. And given that Thiel is so close to Trump, as in like six months ago, um, yeah, I think it was like six months ago, Peter Thiel and Trump had a meeting at Mar-a-Lago. Um, ahead, it was ahead of the uh, the midterms. So... I imagine Peter Till will probably back Trump. All right. This account, Truthwick1, tagged me and a bunch of others. And he had something inter interesting to point me towards. He said, if I keep posting this, someone will pay attention. Pros Michelle leads to Shamik Duda or Dutta. And I was like, well, who the heck is that? So I went and looked. Shamik Duda was running DuSable, a private equity group that got $69 million from 1MDB. DuSable was founded in May of 2013 by Frank White Jr., a member of Mr. Obama's 2008 National Finance Committee and a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton. Shamik Duda, a former special assistant at the White House who worked previously as an invest investment banker, and Pross Michelle. DuSable was founded by those three, and it got $69 million from 1MDB. I found that Shamik Duda recently was back in the news. He's co-founder of Overture, venture capitalist. And he organized a call within 24 hours of the government's announcement that SVB deposits would be made whole. He was an investor in SVB, in Silicon Valley Bank. And he wanted to make sure every climate VC of substance was on the call because they had a crisis because their boutique bank had failed. So this guy was tied to the SVB collapse, or at least was um, connected to it a bit. He decided that he needed to have 100 climate-focused venture executives join a call with him and other former White House officials to talk about SVB. So I found that he was in the news, and... Now I'm wondering, this guy, you know, we just, we saw like the way the 1MDB scandal is gone, it's like a person here and a person there and a person there. And Pross Michelle was mentioned way back in this article. This article is from like 2015, I believe. I remember right. Yeah, 2015. 
Ross Michelle's headed to prison. He just got convicted. I wonder if his former partner, Shamik Duda, is up next. Good pointer from uh, Sleuth right there. I'm going to be watching for that. Now, last, let's check out Biden's nominee to replace Millie. I got a couple rumble rants there. Let me thank you guys. Uh, Arturell, if any of this crap were true, wouldn't Assange have smelled TGIS out eons ago? I smelled this out eons ago. Thank you for the rumble rant. I am not sure because I think Assange is a mixed bag. Um, you got to remember that WikiLeaks was a stateless intel agency. Um, but I think Assange did figure out a lot of things and he has a lot to contribute. I'm hoping he gets extradited soon so we can start a trial. I really want him to get extradited soon. Because the sooner he gets extradited and the sooner Assange's trial happens, the sooner we find out so much, I think. And we may Assange may even be found not guilty, um, which would be great. He would get to prove all sorts of things, prove his innocence, and uh, and be free, and that'd be all great. But um, he hasn't been extradited yet because Britain's weird. Jason, thank you very much. Um, Disney is a distraction. Well, yeah, I mean, I I kind of think some of the Disney stuff is a distraction. I really do. I mean, I, I I agree broadly. Like, I don't. I haven't liked Disney since I was in high school. I I, I started trying. Uh, I stopped going to Disney movies and trying to boycott Disney back in high school. I hated it because of the culture war issues way back then. But um, I still think I I the culture war is important, but I do think it gets used as rage bait and clickbait far too often. Arturell says Trump wins Florida. DeSantis is having problems here. Everyone is yelling at him about home insurance rates, which are unsustainable. Thanks again for the rumble rant. And um, yeah, this I'm 51% sure it's kayfabe. <laughs> That's all I can say. Thanks for the rumble rants. And also on, um, on over on pilled. Thank you guys for the gold pills. Um, thank you, JC Bird. And CL Goober says, did you and BB catch him switching your titles? No. No. People told me after the show that John was switching our titles on the show, and I actually missed it. I didn't pay any attention to it. Um, I missed <laughs> I missed that. All right. So we had a fake news story uh, from Kyle Becker, who sometimes does good work, but I got to say, he completely published a totally fake news article about General Milley resigning um, or being pushed out or something when it's actually that Millie's term is up and New York times reports today that Biden is going to name air force chief to that post. Uh, Millie's time is up in October and um, it'll be general Charles Q Brown jr. Is reportedly who the nominee will be. He's expected to announce him soon. He is, if he is formally nominated and approved by the Senate, General Brown will succeed Milley, whose term as chairman of the Joint Seats of Staff expires at the end of September. General Brown would only be the second black man to become chairman following Colin Powell. General Brown's appointment and confirmation would also mean that along with Secretary Lloyd, we would have two African-American in the top positions for the first time in American history. 
General Brown and Mr. Austin would advise Mr. Biden on national security matters, et cetera, et cetera. So who is this guy? And appointing another African-American, blah, 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 blah. Some 43% of the 1.3 million men and women on active duty in the U.S. military are of color, but for decades, blah, blah, blah. Now it's pretty changing. Okay. At a time when conflict with China looms, General Brown's experience in Asia was also a key factor, one U.S. official said of Mr. Biden's decision, which was reported earlier by Politico. Nothing is final until Mr. Biden announces his pick, and it is unclear when he might do so. But the officials, speaking in the condition of anonymity, which is how all things are done now, said General Brown, a fighter pilot, won out over his closest competitor, the Marine Corps Commandant, General David H. Berger. The two men are believed to be good friends who consult each other regularly, their aides said, but they could not be more different One from each other, General Milley. General Brown is quiet, firm, and methodical, his colleagues say. General Berger, by contrast, is known as an innovator whose ideas about how to remake the Corps to fight in the 21st century so angered the men who came before him that they took the rare step of publicly complaining. He is an infantryman with combat experience, combat command experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Just months after becoming Commandant of the Marine Corps, he announced a plan to get rid of the last of the Corps' tank units betting that his Marines could not drag heavy tanks from island to island in the Pacific if they end up fighting China. Both men were called back to the White House after their initial interviews with Mr. Biden for second meetings. The job has also not been filled by an Air Force general since 2005. During that time, there have been two Marines, a Navy Admiral, and two Army generals. General Brown, widely known as CQ, is often viewed by other officers as cautious up to a point. He proceeds with deliberation for long periods, one colleague said, but can explode at certain moments with a speed that meets the moment. During nationwide protests after George Floyd, an African-American man was beaten to death. Blah, 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 blah. General Brown electrified the rank and file in the military with an extraordinary video. It was in June 2020, and Mr. Trump wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act to use active duty troops to target protesters upset about the killing. General Brown was just days away from his confirmation in a vote Confirmation vote in a Republican-led Senate to be Air Force Chief of Staff. Quote, I'm thinking about how full I am with emotion, not just for George Floyd, but for many African-Americans that have suffered the same fate as George Floyd, he said in a video. I'm thinking about protests in my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, the equality expressed in our Declaration of Independence and Constitution that I have sworn my adult life to support and defend. I'm thinking about his history, history of racial issues in my own experiences that didn't always sing of liberty and equality. The video was a bold move for a general recently promoted by Mr. Trump. I don't, I'm not too worried about that. All right. I want to look up more about this guy real quick. Uh, ah, let me highlight his name. Thank you. Let's go look him up. He served as the 22nd Air Force Chief of Staff, first African-American to be appointed as Chief of Staff. His previous assignments were Commander of Pacific Air Forces, Air Component of Indo-Pacific Command, and Executive Director of Pacific Air Combat Operations Staff. 
As the Air Component Commander for CENTCOM, he was responsible for developing contingency plans and conducting air operations in a 20-nation area. Brown office, uh, previously served as Deputy Commander of CENTCOM. Named in 2020, 100 to 100 list, uh, list of 100. Was, uh, he's Texan. Clinton Brown was born in 1962 to a military family in San Antonio, Texas. Nickname is CQ. Graduated from Texas Tech in Lubbock. I'm from near there. Distinguished graduate, blah, blah, blah. Brown assertive right positions. He's an F-16 instructor. He has commanded a fighter squadron. Um, two fighter wings at Air Force Weapons School. One was the 8th Fighter Wing, nicknamed Wolfpack. He has more than 2,900 flying hours, including 130 combat hours. He was nominated by General Terrence o Oshanesi as commander of Pacific Air Forces. Oshanesi was nominated to become commander of United States Northern Command. Brown was also promoted to four-star general with this position as PAC Air Force Command. Uh, general Brown oversaw all, all of major United States Air Force operations in the Indo-Pacific. Nominated to be chief of the Air Force by President Trump. He is the most senior Air Force officer. He has emphasized the importance. Okay, what was this about Space Force? Brown has maintained Goldfein's prioritization of multi-domain command and control following the Air Force Association's 2016 Air and Space Cyber Conference. Following the establishment of United States Space Force, which is also part of the Department of the Air Force, Brown worked closely with the chief, first chief of space operations, General Jay Raymond. Brown has said that the Space Force will make up much of the Air Force Department's near-term innovation and development. He has emphasized the importance of space superiority and committed to a full collaboration between Air Force and Space Force. As Air Force Chief of Staff, Brown began integration of the new tanker crafts, the Boeing KC-46 Pegasus. Um, let's see... I don't care about the woke stuff and racial stuff. All right. So what I'm reading is that the most senior Air Force person um, who is Texan and who has almost 3,000 hours of airtime and 130 hours of combat time and um, who was nominated by President Trump to be in charge of the Air Force has now been nominated by Biden to be chief of staff or joint chief of staff, chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. There we go. Chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. Um, I'm going to say that this is a good pick and it just sounds like Trump picking someone that Trump would have picked. <laughs> it just sounds like, like, um, 
they're going to parade around his race. The the le- the media on the left, they're going to parade around his race and talk about comments he made about George Floyd and all that kind of stuff. I really don't give a damn. Um, I care far more about this experience. And I care about his experience as being over the entire Air Force operations in the Indo-Pacific, which means he has he's very familiar with China operations. Um, I like all that. And I agree. Joe Lang, good morning. I agree with that other guy um, that was mentioned, the Marine Burger, about what he was saying about tanks and the Marines. Like, he's totally right about that. The only reason there was pushback on him saying that the Marines needed to ditch the tanks. Um, the only reason there's pushback on that is because um, of the military industrial complex doesn't want to stop making tanks. <laughs> they, they want Congress to keep giving them money to make more tanks for the Marines to carry around and use in the Pacific. And they don't care if it, if the logistics mean Island hopping, they'll just get more money from Congress to pay for the Island hopping. So uh, <laughs> I like burger too. Either one of those would have been good. All right, folks, that's the show today. And, um, Appreciate you guys very much. 200 episodes and um, all made possible because of y'all. I will say that I pinch myself every day that I'm able to do this, that I'm able to uh, make my nerdy interest into some sort of streaming show, Substack, whatever it is that I do, um, all the various things I do. Um, I'm able to do it because you guys support. And um, if you want to support the show, hit the thumbs up, subscribe to my Substack, buymeacoffee.com, bensonhoneyfarms.com, redwhitebourbon45.com. All the links are in my link tree. You can find ways to support the show. And um, I don't take it for granted. Really appreciate it, guys. And I'm looking forward to another 200 episodes. Um, so, yeah. Y'all, y'all have blessed me immensely, and I'm thankful for it every single day. So y'all have a blessed weekend. Stay positive. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. Have a good one. I'll see you on Monday. <laughs>